Today, a Christmas movie of the 1980s, Eddie Murphy, and the commodities trading floor of the New York World Trade Center as an oracle of justice. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is your special holiday edition of Good in Theory. Today on Good in Theory, we have Sep. This is a very special guest. She's already a big part of the podcast. She does all of our episode art and runs the Instagram and is really generous with feedback on all my episode drafts. And Sep also runs a really interesting and funny movie blog that you should all read called Sep's Weird Movie Blog on Substack. Today, we're going to talk about one of our favorite Christmas films, which is John Landis's 1983 Trading Places, starring Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. But before we get to that, Seth, can you tell us a little bit about the blog? Hi, everyone. Uh, yeah, I can tell you about my blog. It's called Seth's Weird Movie Blog. And it's basically, it started out as me watching a lot of movies in the middle of the night by myself because I couldn't sleep. And um, sometimes I would see something that was just a little bit off, you know, and just not entirely fitting in the Hollywood formula or, you know, just trying to fit in, but something went horribly wrong. Either the premise was a little drunk or the director or <laughs> something, someone got drunk at some point in the filmmaking process and it became weird. And uh, that's just delightful. So um, our fir- the first movie I wrote about was Roadhouse, which is about... Um, Someone this is who a Patrick consults, Swayze movie. yeah, Patrick Swayze consults about bar bouncing. Just sees this kind of bar bouncing Yoda, which is a crazy premise if you think about <laughs> it. And it couldn't go no, that movie could go nowhere but like weird cult but status, right, right to the top. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, so there's a couple of those movies, right? The the second was Zardos, you know, where even the director was. Uh, said in the commentary, like this one got away from me a little. <laughs> so what's what's Zardos? That's the oh, that's, um, uh, Sean Connery is yes. an alien. Is that correct? Uh, is he an alien? He's well. He's he's dressed in um in a red diaper with and and red <laughs> ammo slings and and it's uh, it's just delightful. Okay, so you love weird movies, ones that are a little bit drunken premise or drunken director. And today we're going to discuss a Christmas movie. Why did you pick Trading Places? Well, first of all, let's just explain what Trading Places is. Can you uh, give us a little introduction? Yeah, Trading Places is a movie from 1983. It's uh, it's generally known as one of the best comedies from the 80s. Uh, but it also happens to be a Christmas movie. Or at least it takes place during Christmas, so... I thought we could count it as uh, as a. Dan Aykroyd is drunk, dressed up as Santa Claus, so it has to be a Christmas movie. Yeah, right. (laughs) Fair, fair, but you wouldn't think of it as like a movie that celebrates Christmas as the holiday. It just sort of takes place during it, maybe. Um, But as we'll you know we'll talk about later, it actually sort of also inverts um, the Christmas movie formula or. Okay, okay well, why don't we start out with just a um, summary of the movie. So, yeah, you I don't know, that. I'll start. It basically, <laughs> the movie opens with just sort of an establishing shots around Philadelphia, where 
is one of the two locations where it takes place. So there's the good working people of Philadelphia, there's different neighborhoods, and there's like landmarks of American Revolution, independence, all these different Philly landmarks culminating, of course, in the great hero of Philadelphia, um, the statue of Rocky. Uh, you know, the working class man made good by dint of his hard work and talent. That's where it's happening. And there are two main characters, okay? The fancy lad. The fancy lad is played by Dan Aykroyd. The character's name is Louis Winthorpe III. And you see him getting served breakfast in bed by his butler, getting shaved. He is a manager, trader, finance guy working for two old white guys called the Duke Brothers. The other side of the equation is Billy Ray Valentine, played by Eddie Murphy, who's kind of this street con man, hustler type who you see pretending to be a Vietnam uh, vet amputee and begging people for money and kind of bugging people on the street. And so the premise of the movie is that these two trade places and we see what happens. And they do that because of a wager by Dan Aykroyd's bosses, the Duke brothers. Do you want to explain the bet, Sepeda? Yeah, the bet is um, about sort of this controversy in, uh, in, at the time in science of uh, nurture versus nature. So, uh, at the time. <laughs> well, I mean, he was reading some sort of science, like genetics was new. Apparently someone got right. a Nobel Prize for it. And that kind of triggered one of the brothers who was like, this is nonsense. Uh, if you put someone in the right environment, they will grow up uh, right and, and, and successful. And if someone is, um, has to deal with like uh, a shitty childhood and, and, you know, bad influences and doesn't get the right opportunities, then they will grow up all criminal and, and um, not so successful. But, and his brother disagrees. His brother thinks that, uh, no, it's all in the blood. It's all in the, uh, in the breeding. Like good people are, uh, are just inherently good or successful people are just, you know, have these qualities somehow in their biological makeup and uh, no amount of uh, switching up their environment will uh, change that. So uh, a good man like uh, Louis Winthorpe III, you can put him in any environment and he'll make something of himself, just like he did, you know, in, uh, in this system. And, yeah, so Randolph, yeah. the younger brother, he believes it's the, like, blood of the horse that that makes the uh, makes the racehorse, I guess. Yeah. And so he comes from good stock. It's good breeding. He'll succeed anywhere. Whereas the other brother, Mortimer, is saying that environment matters. So if you take a good horse and put them in a bad environment, uh, they'll go badly. They'll, they'll they'll go bad. So what they do is they plan to switch. Billy Ray Valentine and Louis Winthrop III to switch their social positions and see if the Eddie Murphy character can thrive as a Wall Street guy or rather a finance guy in Philly. Um, and they propose hypothesize also that Louis Winthorpe, this successful investment guy, a very steady man, as they say, uh, will turn to a life of crime and completely break down if they strip him of his house and limo and position and job. Yes. And so 
that's the premise of the movie. They manipulate it so they trade places. They pull Billy Ray Valentine out of jail. They bail him out. They offer him Lewis Winthorpe's job. They offer him Lewis Winthorpe's house and butler. And to vacate the space, they take out Lewis Winthorpe, frame him up for a petty theft, plant drugs on him. And so he comes out of jail. He doesn't even have his own clothes anymore. He's dressed up as kind of a street tough, um, has a big bruise on his eye. And we see how these two fish swim out of their uh, native waters. Yeah, and I guess you guys can guess why we picked this movie particularly to talk about because it kind of connects with all the... I, I don't. I guess Plato didn't believe in genetics because yeah, I don't figure that out yet. Had he? No. I picked this movie because uh, I like Eddie Murphy. <laughs> okay. Well, I picked it because I thought it was a Christmas movie that also kind of um, tied into the stuff that we've been talking about in the Noble Lie episode and in the latest episode where, or actually in all of the episodes, um, where is is a good person sort of uh, born or grown in the earth <laughs> or uh, is a good person, you know, the, um, the result of a good education. And I think, I don't know, Plato leaves it ambiguous, but I thought it was relevant vaguely, more so than gremlins. Well, <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, in the in the Republic, the city and speech they're sending out is a very strict class hierarchy, right? You, the people yeah. at the top belong at the top because they have good natures. They're bred well. There's a eugenics program, but also they live in the perfect environment. So it's both, but there's not really any class mobility there. Whereas this kind of is approaching the same questions about what justifies uh, a person's class, uh, a person's position in the in the social hierarchy. Um, and it also talks about their nature and their education. So that, in a way, in a way, trading places is addressing deep platonic questions. Um, and so let's just quickly say how it turns out for them, right? Yeah. Um, first, they switch places. Everything is going to Mortimer's plan. Eddie Murphy... Billy Ray Valentine, he is thriving in the upper class world of traders and financiers. He's charming everyone in that class. All they really have to do is take Winthorpe's old clothes. They put on a kind of club jacket, Harvard tie on Eddie Murphy. He looks great, and then he fits right in. He's making good trades. He's charming everyone in that in that milieu. And then Dan Aykroyd. They put him in sort of clothes he got as hand-me-downs from prison. They cancel all his credit cards. He has no access to cash. And he immediately starts to crumble. He starts getting this revenge fantasy. He thinks Eddie Murphy has framed him up. He's understandably quite upset. And he is committing crimes. He breaks into the Christmas party at Duke and Duke, tries to plant drugs in Eddie Murphy, threatens people with a gun, and then tries to commit suicide twice, sort of by the middle of the movie. And then there's a turning point. And what what happens? Well, Eddie Murphy overhears the Duke brothers um, talking about the bed. And so he figures out finally what's happening. Because in the beginning, he doesn't know. He's just suspicious of, uh, you know, two rich guys coming up to him and giving him all the stuff. But he sort of goes with it. 
and uh, he finally figures out why, and he um, goes to Dan Aykroyd, and he tells him the whole story, and they decide to screw with the Dukes right back. So the you know they Dukes screwed with their lives. They're like, yeah, okay, we're we have to find a way to get back at these guys, especially since they were planning to switch <laughs> switch them back, switch Eddie Murphy and and um. And Dan Aykroyd back. So it was just a bad and they had no intention of making any anyone's life better. Or hiring well, actually, they were Murphy. they were gonna <laughs> they were just gonna destroy Dan Aykroyd because they didn't want him back after what they'd seen, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. They, so they had just in messed the beginning with their lives. they were just sort of like we're gonna mess with our lives and I'm gonna put them back uh, once we've uh, we've settled the bet. And so that's when the revenge plot begins. So Eddie Murphy goes to Dan Aykroyd. He says, the Duke brothers have been messing with us. Let's get them back. And then they do some, they steal the plans that the Duke brothers were going to steal. They go to New York City on January 2nd, which is the day after the agricultural reports from the Department of Agriculture come out and futures trading is going wild. And so there's like this insider trading thing. They out insider trade the insider yeah. <laughs> traders, they go into the futures pit at the World Trade Center on this special day. And um, there's this culminating scene where they're buying, they're selling. And the long and short of it is that the Dukes are bankrupted because they tried to go long on frozen concentrated orange juice. But Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, who had the right information, they make a fortune for themselves, for Coleman the butler, and uh, for Jamie Lee Curtis character Ophelia. Um, yeah, they go will, short. Who, who they go short. Um, yeah. Well, they they buy it at a certain price, and then they they start buying it back when 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 it hits the bottom. But anyway, the trading okay. is not so much important. The long and short of it is, they go into the futures pit, the beating heart of capitalism, and um, they achieve justice by bankrupting the bad guys and. And making themselves rich, and they wind up all living on tropical islands, sipping cocktails with uh, new servants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with servants of their own now. So that is basically the plot of the movie. Um, so why? What do you think is the big Christmas message? Why did you? Why did you pick pick this one, Zevita? Uh because this this is the Christmas, the kind of Christmas mo- movie that isn't as sappy and sentimental and moralistic as most of them are. So it's, there are um, a lot of these kind of screwball comedies from the forties and thirties where the rich and the poor kind of, um, so a rich person finds themselves in poor circumstances or the other way around. And then um, sort of in the end, the, the, the idea is money never mattered. All that matters is, I don't know, finding the right girl or your family or something. And uh, people who are poor, they're still rich in the milk of human kindness, which is the only thing that can nurture the uh, uh, palsied soul of of the workaholic. And I think Christmas, a lot of Christmas movies have the same message, right? Or um, like think about this isn't a movie, but the classic story of uh, a Christmas carol, right? It's about a rich guy, you know, finding his conscience. Scrooge. uh, Yeah. And uh, sort of treating his, the, the, his poor employees better or whatever. So the, the poor are used as this kind of like um, stand in for a conscience and humanity and 
an an opportunity to reflect for the rich on you know what is really important in life and i right, hate so that the ultimate message is 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 anti-materialist right it's yes, like at definitely. the beginning we go from scrooge counting his coins like oh how do i save money i'm not going to pay anyone anything till the end when he's buying christmas turkeys or something for christmas geese for everyone i guess they would do geese in the old world uh is that is yeah. that is that right? Yeah, definitely. So it's anti-materialist. It's it's pro-family and pro-love or something. Uh, and I think this movie I like. I I, I don't dis- viscerally dislike because it's actually um, a very materialist. The the message is actually very materialist. It, uh, it in the end, the good guys win not because of, of what is in their heart. Or you know, I'm, I'm sure they're very charming people, but they win also a lot of money, and that is that is sort of their victory. That is how justice is done. Um, not- so the message is basically the opposite, right? Whereas <laughs> in the Christmas Carol and every other uh, Christmas movie, we learn the arc is from being too obsessed with work and money at the beginning to realizing that work and money doesn't matter. The only things that really matter are family, human connection, uh, blah blah blah, Christmas spirit. Right, but this is the opposite. This is the exact opposite because what matters is, yeah, human connection. The good guys win, but how do they win? Is by getting getting super rich and sending their enemies into the poorhouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why I like it. Like it's such a weird Christmas movie. I think the message is like new money versus old money for me. I I think you know where like the old the old yeah. guys the crusty old system you know the the harvard uh, you know what is it you know the interiors that look like oxford it's just all this old fancy wood wood like what do you call it like dark wood paneling yeah you look like you're dark wood everywhere but like dark wood not a scandinavian one exactly exactly and so it's that compared to let's say sort of the casino you know kind of the Donald Trump yeah. aesthetic, well, yes, way, right? right? It, the, kind of like very gosh. Mortimer and Randolph—they're they're old money. They're crooked, and you notice that like there are two kinds of racisms in this movie, um, right? So there's right. like the old yes. guys; these are the corrupt capitalists. They're gaming the system all the time, and they're racist. Like one of them is dropping n bombs. They're bad. He thinks everything, all talent, is the blood. They would never have a black person running their family company. So those are the ones that are unforgivable. However, yeah. the Ackroyd character, who eventually becomes a good guy, also just, he has the kind of thing that you might get railroaded nowadays. He has the kind of racism that you get na- railroaded nowadays for, but then it's kind of like just ignorance. Um, I guess it's forgivable within the context of the movie. So when he just assumes that Billy Ray is trying to rob him when he bumps into him, he just makes all sorts of assumptions about black people that yeah. today, you know, obviously... It wouldn't go over, but it's played. It's played for comedy, but that is something that he's like. You can re- rehabilitate him from. So it seems like there's two levels, uh, and, and just like right. in the way that there's like two levels of capitalism: old money, right? It's the old money, this corrupt version, and the new money, these like clever guys just coming up on their own merits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think I think um, there's also the, this thing that they do with Murphy's character, right? Like, um, I read some reviews that was like, he's not stereotypical. Like, this could be very stereotypical, but he's not because he's like, he, ha, 
some people attribute it to the writing and some people to like Murphy's uh-huh. character. They try like he gave this guy a real character, you know? Well, I mean, Eddie but Murphy was just like it's written in a way. He was just yeah. He's no, he's great. He's uh, this is I think I, maybe I don't have any theories about this movie. Maybe I just really like Eddie Murphy, you know? It's just, and Dan Aykroyd. Just, they're just so damn charming. Um, but but I think it's it's. It has something to do with the writing too, because they do, they do make him one of the good ones, right? So there's like when he Im- invites all of the people from like his old life to his house, and they yeah. make a mess, and he's like obviously he's upset and stuff, and you know. So there's this party scene. Um, yeah. As soon as he gets the new house and all the money, uh, Billy Ray goes to one of his old haunts, this bar, and invites any ladies back in his limousine who want to come to his new fancy house, and everyone comes. There's a big party. And I, you know, when I saw this as a kid, I was like, oh, man, that's bad. Look at all this look at all this partying. <laughs> um, and soon enough, social circumstance has effect on Eddie Murphy, and he starts yelling at them like, hey, what are you doing here? Who's putting out their cigarettes on my floor? Have you heard people heard of coasters? And he kicks everyone out. And so I wondered if that's showing, if that's supposed to show like he is quickly learning the value of something if he's becoming if he's getting new virtues or if he's quickly becoming like a heartless person who is super fussy and snobby and can't enjoy all this luxury around him just because he's in it and it's his yeah that's interesting what what i was thinking about was like the scene before that where he's in jail and he's also sort of he he's he's you know he's pretending like he beat up some people and he has a limousine and like he's making up all these stories and uh and there are these guys who are like okay you're full of shit i'm gonna beat you up you know so he's already kind of like yeah (laughs) so he's already kind of like portrayed as kind of this sort of outsider you know and so i was like is that are they yeah is that is is his behavior is he becoming, I don't know, white and uptight or something? Or is that what they're trying to say? Or was he already kind of not these people's friends? And now he's realizing realizing that. Well, he says that, right? Coleman you know says... Like, now now Coleman they're nice says, hey, to him. The butler, Coleman, has a great time at the party. Um, and he says, look, I yeah, think yeah. it was a great success. All your friends had a good time. And Valentine says, they're not my friends. You know, they're just a bunch of people using right. my house like a zoo or something. Yeah. And so this is my point. Like, was he already an outsider and they just, you know, picked, picked someone who would, who would take to this, his new circumstances easily or something because he, he didn't have any kind of real place in his old world or, or, you know, or is, is it really just the wealth that's making him act differently or seeing his old friends differently or whatever? Well, I I mean, yeah. So that I thought I thought that was a little like I was like, hmm, what is this? What is your point here? I don't know. But what I thought was really funny was um, sort of all his friends are prostitutes, or I don't know if they're even pro- maybe they're just loose. Oh I yeah, there's oh, so there's this thing about uh, '80s movies. I don't know if you know that. There's like the '80s comedies titties. So <laughs> there's a weird yeah, thing yeah, that yeah. in all comedies <laughs> in the '80s you just get like. A couple of topless women, just quickly for a second. Or yeah, two. but like, but they're, I, and I was thinking about that. That they, uh, so, oh, um, they're, you know, uh, 
it's 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 sexy and they're dancing and whatever and it's supposed to be a little like depraved yeah. i guess maybe um but there's another scene in in the country club with his with sort of uh Winthorps or Dan Aykroyd's yeah. old all dressed Harvard in full tennis whites where <laughs> yeah they're like they're dressed in like preppy preppy outfits and they're singing a cappella so there's four guys and they're singing yeah. a cappella to like three girls i think or four and you know they're basically talking about you know where Fucked all they, those chicks. Yeah. they <laughs> screw these women yeah and it's just incredibly <laughs> i was like this is a lot more depraved somehow yeah, they're I don't know, dressed in like sort of, tennis whites not... sweaters and they're singing in this like really nerdy acapella style but it's just a lewd song yeah, but it's also about the women who are sitting there and just just sitting there and and, and they're supposed to take it, you know. Oh, so are, like, are you are, are you like, are you okay, offended but, on behalf of the sexual honor of these uh, <laughs> of these uh, chunky well, country like, club if, chicks? If I had to choose, <laughs> if I if I had to choose, I'd rather be you know one of the loose women with their tits out at the party. At least you know they had some agency right. or whatever. <laughs> this is sucks. <laughs> be like you know so this is if this is how you talk about a surface what do you say about us like behind our backs like i don't know it just seemed to me that they had less respect for women than supposedly you know these sort of lower right, class well, so, i mean or whatever. i think for sure the upper class friends are the villains and they're meant to be played like as these complete assholes and that's usually the case in 80s movies like yes the yes, fancy guys yeah. who are already fancy are always are yeah. always bad and they always are interested in sex which anyway but the the like kind of low class people from the bar that Eddie Murphy went to I think I think that they're kind of ambiguous they were partying hard one guy like threw up somewhere but they weren't yeah, yeah. you know mean they didn't betray anyone yeah, this is what I was so I was like it, it was if this is supposed to be equivalent, it's not, you know? I'd rather be at the right. at the other well, party. Actually, I watched this movie with my sister. And my sister, um, I was going to say she's like the, the closest thing to a normal person I have, but it's more like the closest thing I have to what I would think if my brain was in theory poisoned, you know? And she <laughs> was like, this, like, like for her... Eddie Murphy got the raw end of the deal because she had to hang out with all these very boring <laughs> yeah. people all the time. She was like, "This is my hell." Whereas, 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 Dan Aykroyd just got to go live these with Jamie Lee Curtis. So boring. But yeah, okay, so let yeah. you. Uh, what do you think of of Jamie Lee's character? Um. Yeah. So I I read that you know John Landis has this sort of habit of you know someone said he he casts you know women that are just basically bunnies. Um, and that's kind of how he portrayed her. But I think she sort of, she took that role and she she did something with it. She did something with that role. It was just magic, yeah. you know? She didn't have a lot a lot to So the, the character is, she's a sex worker who was initially she's, roped into this plot yeah. by the secret uh, corrupt agent of the Dukes, who's like this violent character who carries out their deeds for them. And he is the one, he bribes her to go... Um, talk dirty to to Dan Aykroyd to alienate his girlfriend to make sure he's really alone. And then afterwards, um, she thinks better of it. She feels bad for him. And then she takes him in and kind of says, well, I'll take care of you for now. And you can, you can hit me back when you recover your status in the world. Yeah. 
And she has this, she has like the greatest smile. I don't know. I, I was thinking actually what I thought was, um, you know, where she, the moment where she's like, I don't do drugs and I yeah. don't have a pimp. She's like, you also have meant to think, oh, she's one of the good ones or like as if, as, as if like, you know, a, a prostitute with like, I don't know, a, a, a crack habit would be less deserving of you know of some course, sort of of course drug use the in the 80s in the war on drugs that was like the mark of the <laughs> devil <laughs> but notice where that speech goes because the hooker with a heart of gold is a classic movie trope right so you yeah, always yeah. have the sex worker who's like then they turn out to be a real person and oh my god like you're you're one of these <laughs> special people why are you in these circumstances what's a girl like you doing in a in an economy like this um yeah i'm you know with all the sex positivity going on i'm going to miss that trope <laughs> in a way like you well, know do you know did you notice how she proves her virtue right she says she doesn't do drugs she doesn't have a pimp and then Capitalist virtue. She says, I have $140,000 saved. I figure three years on my back. My savings are mostly in treasury bonds. So the moment when she's showing her virtue, it's precisely because she's like right. this practical, frugal person who has an economic plan. Um, and <laughs> treasury bonds were in the 80s like the symbol of, of that, of like prudent wealth management. This body, yeah. this face. What I got up here. Uh, yeah. And these brains or something? Yeah, what I got up here. It's it's entrepre- entre- very entrepreneurial. She's she's an entrepreneur. And I, that's also how Aykroyd kind of, Aykroyd who understands business. It's like, uh, you know, when she has a suitor or like, who brings her flowers? I don't know. And then he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm taking up space, you know? Business is business, you know? And just sort of, this is how they get each right. other. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, so in, like Aykroyd's sick in yeah. bed with a fever. He can't get up. And then one of uh, Jamie Lee's, um, what, Ophelia. Ophelia's clients come over and they have an appointment, but she tells him to leave because she's taking care of that. But that he, Dan Aykroyd, he wants to get out of bed. He's like, business is business. You know, I respect that. I respect the hustle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. They, all, they the both only respect thing the they hustle, respect. you know? Like he's... <laughs> He's like, yeah, because that's right. the only thing that counts. Like, even though he is, you know, he's a fancy Harvard guy and she's a prostitute, you know, they both, they're all about making money. That's, that's the, it's wildly meritocratic, like, actually. So yeah. in a way, this is really about class, right? It's about like the difference between the classes, who belongs where, why, why can't we sort it out so it is distributed appropriately? But I think that's like the big, low-key ideological lie in this movie. Okay, so... Here I go. <laughs> um, I'm listening. I'm listening. Go. How class works in this is you put on a different jacket. Like you put the uh, club jacket on Eddie Murphy and he's posh. And you put the weird leather jacket on Dan Aykroyd. Then all of a sudden he's this low class maniac. But in fact, like if you read Bourdieu, class doesn't work like that. It works over years. It's habitus. It's the way you stand. It's the way you talk. Right. At, up till the end, uh, Eddie Murphy's still trying to purge the word motherfucker from his vocabulary, right? But there's a scene yeah. where Aykroyd goes into the bank and he's very confident. He has these stupid clothes on. He looks like, uh, you know, a a terrible person who would never be allowed in a bank. You know, that's what he's reading as. But he walks in confident. He's like, I will uh, withdraw $500 in cash, make it 1000 actually, and so on and so on. He's talking to the banker with utmost confidence. Uh, and people treat him like very poorly because of how he's dressed and because of external circumstances. But I think that as a matter of fact, if you speak that confidently and you look at a certain way and you have soft hands, 
you're actually going to get a lot more leeway than Dan Aykroyd does because you have the your class is in your body. You grew up that way. So you're not going to just sink to the bottom right. in, in the same way. It's very, very hard for people who grew up in other circumstances to immediately be at home at the top in like that fantasy where Eddie Murphy, you put him in a jacket and you send him to the fancy restaurant to make small talk. And all of a sudden he's charming everyone. Right. I don't, <laughs> I think, I think the restaurant scene in the wire is probably more realistic than the restaurant scene in trading places. And the fantasy that it's portraying right. is that we're, we're all the same except for our jackets and our talents. And these like, long-term decades long uh in educations don't don't make a difference well yeah i mean it fits with the ideology right so like uh success is about taking the opportunities and sort of being smart with them and uh that's it you know there is no it's kind of uh that libertarian kind of i don't know sort of tabula rasa kind of thing where like there is no in like inheritance here is bad <laughs> right so the old money you know that they keep saying like oh, we've been here at this stock trade thing like, for we've had seats here since it was built 74 years we built something. this stock exchange yeah yeah it's stuff ours. like that you know the yeah exactly <laughs> of old money un, un, unmatched by uh meritocratic virtue yeah exactly exactly so that that's that's the evil you know the um the 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 evil here is a lack of opportunities, which is the so Reagan Reagan era thing. It's not, um, it's not historical, you know. It's just like personally, you're either taking the sort of taking your wits and and the 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 opportunities and the sort of the 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 chances afforded to you and making something of yourself, or uh, or you're a loser. Or you don't, and sort of the people who uh, didn't need to have opportunities, so yeah. old money, who like they all sort of uh, it was all uh, you know given to them. They didn't they did nothing to earn it. Those are the evil people. <laughs> so the the I think they match it up with like the, uh, they ma they match it up also with like the other great evil of America, which is which is racism, right? Yes, 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 yes. So, but so I, that, this is what I wanted to ask. Like, do you think so? The, the thing you're talking about is basically um, a class is something that you have to learn and stuff. But here, it's also like class and race are basically identical in a way, right? So, Eddie Murphy. It, I think the original, the working title of the movie was like black and white or something. <laughs> you know, they just go for it in the eighties. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they actually very explicitly sort of make black people sort of synonymous with poor. The title song was originally Ebony and Ivory by Stevie Wonder. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> oh, that was funny. Um, you know, so, so, and I think that's one of the things where, like, if uh, if you look at it now, it's like, oh, that's problematic. You know, you can't just sort of assume that all black people are poor. And so, you know, so it's like it's very sort of essentialist. Well, I think I think they thematize that they say that like they don't assume they play the assumption that all black people are poor for comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I agree. And that kind of goes back to what you said about class and race working in the same way, being the same in this movie. Because I think in one way that's true. Like 
like I was saying earlier, class, right? It doesn't matter. Class is a lie. It's fake. It's changing your jacket. And they want to treat race the same way. They want to make it so that um, Eddie Murphy, who's black, which is just synonymous with poor and underprivileged in the eyes of everyone in the movie, they want to prove that that is actually not true, that that doesn't matter, that as soon as um, you change his position, he'll thrive, he'll get rich. And so both class and race are, are a lie, superficial nonsense. And that's how they're identical. But, but, sorry, sorry, there's one difference. And, and, and that's that I think that according to the morality of the movie, class hierarchy is wrong. Like the dyed-in-the-wool racists are played as villains and the like just ignorant racists are played as people who need to be re-educated. So they, the, the racial hierarchy is unjust. But the class hierarchy, the inequality in society, they never really say that it's unjust, right? The only unjust thing about the current order is that people who don't deserve it, like the Duke brothers, who just got there by inherited privilege, being white, being old and fancy, it's that is that they have all the advantages, and that's the injustices. It's not that there's, it's not that very harsh inequalities exist. It's that the wrong people benefit from them, and and setting the world right is uh, is just putting the talented, smart people who really deserve it at the top, and the people who are just um, going off privilege back at the bottom where they belong, or wherever their talent will will take them. Exactly. That's why it's so 80s, right? That's why I love it so much. Because, I mean, it shows a lot of wealth inequality, but I feel like the message of the movie is um, that being handed wealth is wrong, but having it, as opposed to other people not having it, who haven't used their talents and their opportunities and all that stuff to, um, to come on top in the system... Yeah, it's unfair. They're, what did they ever do to deserve this? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's 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 unfair when they're handed it. Um, so they should be poor, but the people who are actually poor and uh, maybe if they would have gotten this opportunity, they would have squandered it. And if they actually end up in uh, in the poorhouse and and end up destitute, that's okay. Because you know they didn't they didn't use their talent. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with like extreme obscene privilege, right? It's just that if you didn't work for it, that's unfair. Yeah, yeah. You should be. Um, it's it's like I said, broadly meritocratic, right? So you should be uh, rewarded for merit, and that's all. So you shouldn't be rewarded just because maybe you're human and you deserve a place to sleep or something. No, no. It's and all. That's like that's. That moral, I like. I was just, I was just thinking of this. It brings us right to the final scene because there's a shift in the story, right? The whole beginning of the movie is in Philadelphia, the sort of birthplace of America, blah 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 blah. That's the old traditional place, but the scene of justice, like where they travel to at the end, is the futures pit in the New York uh, or in the World Trade Center. It's in New York City. So there's this move from Philly to New York, from these old fancy wood paneled houses and clubs to the Futures Pit in the in the World Trade Center, which Dan Aykroyd says is the like last remaining remaining bastion of pure capitalism. And that is like the theater of justice. That 
is what sets the world right is going into the place where the only thing that matters is like this fight in a pit between men um, with their talents and wits to make money on orange juice futures. You know what I liked? That last scene, uh, sort of, it's a crazy scene, right? There's like people pushing and shoving and, and screaming and there, it's just a pit. What I like about it is um, it has sort of, it's very physical, and I read that actually uh, they kind of toned down the physicality of it, that in real life it's even like crazier uh-huh. than that. And I kind of like that this sort of pinnacle of capitalism, it's, it ends up with like, you know, dudes Actual fighting. Actual pit on of a guys rock like crawling over like, each other. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, it's just this physical kind of crazy um, sort of, you know, monkey, monkey yeah. fight. <laughs> You know, for like domination or whatever. Like, I don't understand exactly how it works, but I I like sort of the sort of raw physicality of it and just, just becoming kind of like, who is really, you know, the savages here? It's just, it's just so. Yeah, but, you know, if, if they're, if they're confident so savages, they're good. That is, you know, the, the capitalist <laughs> is the noble savage of the 80s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I one thing I... I was thinking about that, like, kind of that is related to what you were saying earlier about the overall message of this movie of like being one of meritocratic ruthlessness, um, in kind of a very pro capitalist morality tale, is the contrast with with the other with the other story. So why do all Christmas stories do the opposite? Right? You, this, is, this is what you're saying is like usually the Christmas movie is forget about the material, yeah. remember what matters, the things that everyone has, family, connection, blah 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 blah. Just a human I don't know, this shit that you don't care about, you find boring. Um <laughs> and and this is exactly this is like it has the form of a Christmas movie, but the moral is the exact opposite, right? And it got me wondering why are all Christmas movies like that? Why is it that the Christmas movie, the essential trope of the Christmas movie is like anti-materialist? And the answer's yeah. in the movie. It, Did you catch it? <laughs> no. I don't know. No. I, I really wondered that. I was like, I'm going to ask Cliff because I don't know. <laughs> why is this? There's a scene where... Billy Ray is first proving his chops in the investment world. And the brothers, he's like, you got to sell this. The price is, dro- is going is, is gonna to stop dropping. It's going to bounce. We got to buy futures of, I don't know, pork bellies, something. And Billy Ray is like, I would hold off if I were you. I think the price is going to keep falling. And they're like, wait, why do you think that? The older brother wants to give him a chance. He wants to give him a chance to show his merit. He puts the order on hold. And he says, look, it's nearly Christmas time. People are going insane. This is the maximum anxiety. They're panicking. They think they're going to lose everything. And it's particularly during the season when people are so in debt. They have to pay back all the gifts that they just bought. They're about to hit this massive hangover from spending. And they're anxious. So the holidays are actually the time of maximal material anxiety. And I think that's the answer to why Christmas movies typically... Mm are the ones that always, like, Christmas, I wrote in that article, like, in CBC before, right? It's like an upside-down war economy, a potlatch, where we just, like, torch all of our wealth for, like, no utilitarian reason. And there's an eventual cost to that. And I think that's why, like, the Christmas movie is always anti-materialist. It, like, justifies 
the potlatch waste of money that we do over the holidays mm-hmm. and it like soothes our anxiety at the time of like maximum uh, financial anxiety. Nice. Like it makes it okay because it's like, okay, I'm spending all this money and I'm really, really stressed, but it's for exactly. family. Or don't like, it's don't for, worry about know, the money. The it Just doesn't matter. Think of what's important. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. God, that I really like that article. <laughs> we should put a link to it. I was thinking, like, I don't like most Christmas movies, like, or actually movies about, like, class and stuff. And, like, I just don't like poor people's uh-huh. in entertainment. But then what Christmas movies do I do like? <laughs> it's like, hey, um, obviously. Uh, do you want to just clarify why you don't like poor people in entertainment? Lest you sound like you're saying, I don't long. like poor people. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I, I, I don't I don't like so there's this whole thing about like we should have representation. I think the wire for me is the best example of this. It's like portraying because uh, I lived in these places, you know, and sort of whatever the, the the poor part of town or whatever. And it it I don't like it being being sort of portrayed as entertainment for fancy upper middle class young people young professionals who can afford hbo you know it's like yeah fuck you (laughs) fuck you for making this your entertainment (laughs) i I hate that and i just and so that's why i'm like you know if and I, i i i've read that actually it makes people more aware you know and it it's actually uh educational but there is something so I don't know wrong about it. It just really gets. Me. I I don't like Dickens okay. either. It's like, <laughs> you know just sort of sort of you know telling your little stories for the benefit of you know people who read. <laughs> <gross>. <laughs> fuck those guys. <laughs> yeah, fuck those guys. And just you know just write about your own class. You know, write about right, the, I... <laughs> the bad fate anxiety of your own class. And this is what I was gonna say. This is why I think my favorite one of my favorite. Christmas movies is Gremlins, but the, the I think the 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 idea of why I like that is actually more visible in Jingle All the Way, where like <laughs> so, <Go on. laughs> so the the absolute middle class sort of pure um, suburb anxiety gets gets channeled into this sort of this object you know this chase for an object and it descends into madness and i really like that it's uh arnold schwarzenegger who is like supposed to be this sort of you know this is sort of uh, icon of masculinity or whatever and he's just sort of caught in this very sort of very sort of nice <laughs> so very um so he has a lot of anxiety about these very small suburb living yeah. things, you know, like, and 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 it just goes nuts. He goes nuts. He just gets, like everyone who is who is involved in that chase for that one product to make their child happy because otherwise, you know, their whole I don't know their whole life is meaningless. I guess I I like that. <laughs> I like this <laughs> just the despair and the madness of like this suburb, like American suburb, which for me. I guess maybe it's just we like to watch things that we don't know much about. And for me, that's exotic, you know, and poor people are not exotic. And I just, you know, don't. So, so, so like some people read like Archie and watch these movies as a kind of like nostalgic thrill and you read it as a exotic American safari. 
Yeah, in a way, but also just to kind of the this the sort of the pure bleak descend into madness that starts with you know, it kind of like the intensification of family life and how close it always is to you know being being sort of just the void, just meaninglessness. You know. So, so the intensification of family life. Leading to a descent into madness, ending in the void. Yeah. I think we can end on that. <laughs> okay. All right. Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy holidays. <laughs> happy holidays. Or, and uh, the Happy New Year. Or Merry New Year. <laughs> to the void. <laughs> to the void. A big and obvious thank you to Sep for being on the show today and for her help with every episode of this podcast. Check out her movie blog. It's at sep.substack.com and it is weird and funny and unlike any other movie reviews that you're going to read. Thank you to Clayton Tapp of Orb Soundworks for the holiday Jingle Bellsy remix of our theme tune. And I'd also like to thank you for listening. We're getting to the end of our first calendar year at Good In Theory, and I really appreciate any time that you've spent listening to us. Thanks. We are going to be back soon enough in the new year with new interviews and new scripted episodes on The Republic, as well as, eventually, some new projects that are to be determined. Until then, I wish you the best holidays that the circumstances will permit or even better. <laughs>